Thank you, Cleon. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to turn over here to First, Second Corinthians chapter 8. And uh, now that we're past the uh, last year and got through everything, and we, as you know, we have been coming through the book of Second Corinthians today uh, on our first Sunday of the new year, we're going to start a brand new chapter, and Second uh, Corinthians chapter 8. <coughs> Uh, I, I must tell you that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really excited for uh, the beginning of this year. I think that we couldn't have had a better uh, start than we had New Year's Eve with uh, time in the Bible together. And so many of you are just really excited about that and getting a hold of that. And, and truthfully, that will absolutely uh, change your whole demeanor uh, about the Bible and, and make it a lot easier for you. And uh, if, uh, you know, if you need some help putting it all together, let me know. I, I have some people that obviously that uh, have a good handle on the Bible that will be great in helping sit down with you and, and, and put all that material together. I, I'll be glad to help you with it if you want to come over and sit down with me and let me see how you're doing with it and help you, give you some pointers on it. Um, it, it now that we have it out there and now that you have it, you want to make sure that you do it right and you do it well because that's going to be the key here. So, uh, I'm really excited about that. Then I'm excited about uh, getting ready to start our counseling ministry, our people ministry. I think that um, you're going to see, for those of you who are going to be part of that, that it's going to be a, uh, a literally a life-changing thing for you, not only because of what you're going to learn, but by what it's going to require of you to, to do it. And, um, you know, it's going to be a great time. And I'm looking forward to spending that time with you and, and uh, really uh, building the base here and and uh, we'll talk more about that when we get together on the, uh, on the date of that uh, at meeting. But uh, today, as I said, we're going to enter into 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, and in this chapter, we continue to work our way through this book, and uh, yet we find another great aspect of the ministry. Uh, this one today is a little different than what we've come through uh, in, in one respect. Anyhow, you know, when we come through chapter 1, we, I showed you how that every chapter really defines for us uh, a main theme in ministry. Sometimes you have uh, themes underneath that main theme, but uh, chapter 1 deals with the fact that, uh, that you becoming one with your people uh, through their suffering. And that's really the key. You know, going through trials with people, uh, learning from those trials, and then them taking the things that they learn by going through it and helping somebody else. Chapter 2 we saw really uh, the aspect of the forgiving spirit of the minister. And we talked about all the different aspects of that. Chapter 3, uh, Paul was called into question on his own ministry by the church at Corinth. And we looked at that as the, the proof of our ministry. And of course, the proof of our ministry, the proof of our salvation is the people that uh, we, we work with and the people we have built, um, you know, and, and all that goes along with that. Chapter 4, we saw the defining of our ministry. We talked about how that the ministry has to be uh, run openly and honestly and how that uh, there can be no hidden things of dishonesty or handling the Word of God deceitfully. We went through all of that. Chapter 5, I think, was probably the chapter that all the other chapters point to, and that is your perspective on the ministry, and that is why we do what we do, the judgment seat of Christ. Someday that we'll give an account of what God has called us to do and how well we've done that. Chapter 6 was the fellowship of the ministry. We talked about fellowshipping with truth and people who uh, love the truth. And then chapter 7, we, got, we just finished up, and that was the promises of the minister. 
And again, we showed how that the principles of the Word of God are really the key to and uh, applying them into your life and how, how that all works. Now, chapter 8, we find what I think personally is the key to all of it. And this is just chapter, uh, these, this study is different than all the other rest simply because this chapter has two chapters with it to go together. And in chapter 8, it deals with the heart of the minister. And uh, in fact, as I said, uh, chapter 8 and 9 go together. The only subject in this book that requires two complete chapters to lay it out. Now, when I, I always tell people that want to study the Bible that you always want to, uh, you never want to, you never want to underemphasize something that God emphasizes, but you don't want to overemphasize something that God minimizes. And a lot of people get messed up that way. They'll take something that Bible really doesn't say much about and make a big deal out of it. And the big things that the Bible makes a big deal out of, they never really see. And, uh, but here's a, here's a thing where it deals with the heart of the minister, where he takes two chapters uh, to cover this. And uh, to me, based on that, knowing what I know about the Bible, that would make this a very key chapter. And, uh, and, and I tell you, when God emphasizes something, we, we need to always want to put it together. Uh, there's probably places in the Bible where the Bible will say, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. I've always found that when the Bible said that, he was emphasizing something that he wanted me to hear. And uh, when he puts a double tap on something that he talks about it in two chapters, when all the other subjects he talks about in one, you can guarantee it, it's probably pretty important. Now, before we start to work through this chapter and uh, see all the things that we have here. There's some things that I want to talk about, and I always like to give you an overview of what we're looking at so you have a better context to put it in. And as I said, the theme of these two chapters, chapter 8, which we're going to get into today, and chapter 9, will be the heart of the ministry. And that's really key because, and I'm sure you already know this, or you should know this anyhow, that, that the attitude of heart is everything. Bible says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, talks about thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and all of your soul. And uh, it's the most important thing you got to guard. Of all the things as a child of God you got to watch out for, of all the things that you got to protect yourself against, and there's many things out there, the thing that you have to guard 24 hours, seven days a week is your attitude of heart toward the things of God and, and toward God. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, and the reason for that is because uh, um, ministry will always begin in the heart. Everything begins in our heart. Not only does ministry begin in our heart, but we know from the Bible that also that's where sin begins. It begins in our heart. You know, the other night when we come through uh, uh, those 27 different sections of the Bible, I showed you how that uh, the devil was a created being. And before he fell, uh, the Bible says he was perfect in all his ways. But then Bible says that iniquity is found in him. And when you study it all out, it was found in his heart. He said in his heart, I will ascend my throne above the stars of God. He said in his heart, I will be like the most high. Your heart and your heart attitude is absolutely crucial in determining whether you make it or whether you don't when it comes to God. Because not only does ministry start in your heart, which we're going to see today, you're going to find that sin starts in the heart. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it says, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it come the issues of life keeping our heart with all diligence. And that's exactly what Solomon uh, told his son. And it's exactly what his son did not do. And Rehoboam became one of the biggest messes in the Bible and, and really messed the whole concept up. You know, uh, I, I had to laugh at the, right after the turn of the uh, year, 
2013, uh, they come on the news and they talk about how that, that immediately, I forget exactly, four, five, six hundred new laws went into effect. And every time there's a problem in America, they think that, that solving the problem is by creating more laws. And uh, that's, how they, that's how they look at it. Uh, you know, you got all these nuts out here shooting people with guns, so make new legislation, new laws about gun control. Uh, people were obese, so they want to outlaw certain food that you can eat, make new laws. You can't get a 64-inch Slurpee, uh, things like that. Uh, you know, and, and, and they're, always, they, they're always going at it that way. And, and, you know, and I've learned anything, and you're smart enough to know this, too. The issue in America uh, or any place is really never really what it probably seems to be. You can change all the laws you want. You can create all the new laws that you want. But until you change man's heart, nothing is going to change because everything goes back to man's attitude of heart. I, I, there are so many great lessons that at some point, you know, I've got so many studies in the back of my mind I'd love to do. But at some point, I'd love to go back and do a study. We could probably do it on a, a Thursday night. I don't know. Maybe it'd be a good New Year's Eve study. But I'd like to go back and completely lay out the structuring of America, the Constitution, and our founding fathers. I think there's so much you can learn from going back and looking at that and seeing, uh, because of the period of time that it was, because the men that were uh, alive at the time, because the spirit that was in, the, in this country at the time, and, and most of all, where the whole world was in relationship to the Bible you hold in your hands, that you find some of the most incredible uh, things that you could ever learn uh, that helps you understand why things are the way they are today. You know, John Lott, John Lott was one of our founding fathers, and he was a great man and a moral man, and he had a lot to do with the, the institutions of when we started our country, but he was not a saved man. And John Lott, when they looked at framing the Constitution that put our government into effect, John Lott said that uh, to have good laws, uh, you have to have good government. And he was saying, you know, that good government will produce good laws. And he said, uh, you know, if you want to have a good government, you have to have good laws. And if you have to have, if you have good laws, you're going to have good government. And William Penn, who they named the state of Pennsylvania for, was a saved man. And he stood up in that same meeting and he said something that I think is one of the most profound things that was ever said. And it shows you the character, the mindset, and how our country was back then and how it was thinking. Do you know that after our Constitution was set up, that each state had to come up with a state constitution. Do you realize in the early beginnings of the state constitutions that every state constitution had within its parameters that you had to be a born-again Christian for you to be able to hold office? That you had to believe that there was a God, you had to believe there was a heaven, and you had to believe there was a hell. And you also had to believe that as a public official, you were going to stand before God because of your decision that you based based on the Bible. It's incredible. You couldn't find that anywhere today in anything in just a short 200 and some years from where our country was founded. And yet at the same time, uh, you know, as I've said many times, our country was not formed as a democracy. It was formed as a republic. And a republic is based on uh, the principles of the Word of God. It's a, it's a very great study to take. But William Penn stood up in that meeting, and he made a great statement. And he, he countered what John Lott said. Not that John Lott meant anything bad by it. John Lott was a good moral man, but he wasn't under the influence of the Word of God like William Penn was. And William Penn got up in the exact same meeting and he said, the key here is not good laws. 
But the key here is good men. In other words, saved men. He said, good laws do good, but good men do better. He says, governments are put in motion by men. He says, good laws may lack good men, but good men will never lack good laws, nor will they ever pass bad ones. And in good, he's talking about saved men. You know what William Penn knew? William Penn knew you could pass all the laws in the world, but it won't change anything because the only thing that will change anything is when man's heart gets changed. And he knew that you could have all the good laws you want, but if you don't have good men, save men, men who uh, have a changed heart, uh, it'll never go uh, the way it, it's supposed to go. And, it, you know, when you begin to look at chapter 8 and then a little bit later on in chapter 9, you see that all the issues begin in man's heart. Over the years, I've seen parents that had kids who uh, weren't, were not what they wanted him to be, and they were worldly, or they were whatever, and, I, and, and many, many times over the years, the parents have come to me, and they said, why don't you put some really good people with my children, and the idea is, and I, I understand your concept, the idea is, well, if I get my worthless boy with some people who have some worth, he won't be so worthless. Now, that sounds good, but it isn't true. I mean, you could put a thousand people around somebody who's worthless, and unless that person wants, has the changed heart to do what's right, nothing's going to change. Geographical locations, changing geographical locations never solve our problems. Our problems get solved where they all start, in man's heart. And that's why these two chapters, I think, are, are absolutely key chapters. Ministry will begin in a man's heart because that's where salvation started, in your heart. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised thee from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto, uh, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We want to get kids out of the ghetto, so we think if we take them out of the ghetto where they live in cardboard boxes and put them up in multi-million dollar palaces, that we've solved the problem. We want a kid gets out of the public school because the public schools are corrupt. So we take those kids or we homeschool them or we put them in Christian schools or alternative schools and we think that's going to solve the problem. The only thing that's going to solve man's problems is when man gets a heart transplant. Amen. That he gets the heart of God that he didn't have and until that happens, you can do whatever you want to do. You can put as many people in that worthless kid's life. You can do as many laws in this country as you want until that person's heart changes to the things of God. It's all for naught. It's all for naught. And you know what? When you get into counseling and dealing with people, you're going to see how simple it really is. I don't profess or pretend that, you know, I, you know that dealing with people is a, is a hard thing. It really isn't. People are hard to deal with, but dealing with them is not hard. It's just many times people can't make the hard decisions in dealing with them. Ministry then will begin in our hearts because with God, he always goes after a man's heart. And you're going to find a lot about the heart in the Bible. The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Yet you're going to find over in Psalm 119, it says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. You see, your heart toward God and what you do for God or what God does with you is the key to everything. That's why I put two chapters in here. That's why he wants us to see that in the aspect of ministry, the absolute vital key at the end of the day is going to come down to your attitude of heart and my attitude of heart. It's as simple as that.
It's as simple as that. Ministry begins our heart because that's where God, that's what God changed about us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, For God, who, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, it was, uh, uh, and, and ministry begins in our hearts because that's when God gives us a new heart. And if you ever want to study it out, there's four men in the Bible that really set the, set the tone here of what a heart is. Two in the Old Testament, two in the New Testament. The two in the Old Testament will be David and Solomon. The Bible says in the book of Acts, that uh, uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 22, that David was a man after God's own heart. And you want to study in the Old Testament a man who had God's heart? Study David. You want to study a man that had God's own heart when he started out after David? Study Solomon. And you find that those two men in the Old Testament are a great study of not only how to get God's heart, but how to lose God's heart. Then when you come into the New Testament, you have two men here. And they will be the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is a great study because he does something that no other man in the Bible ever did. And uh, I've told you many, many times how that, uh, you know, that the Bible says that he's the only apostle that uh, Jesus ever said he loved. And I understand he loved them all. But you're going to find of the 12, John had a special love for God uh, and God had a special love for him. And uh, you, you're going to find that he's a great example of that. He did something, or I should say accomplished something, that nobody else in the Bible ever did. He actually leaned over and put his head on the very breast of the Lord Jesus Christ and heard the heartbeat of God. Now, I know that he, Jesus Christ is not here, and you and I can't do that in a physical sense. But he did it in a physical sense, but the physical act is a great representation of the spiritual thing because you and I may never not be able to do that physically, but boy, we sure ought to be able to do it spiritually. And the heartbeat of God is the Word of God. In fact, when you get into Song of Solomon chapter 2 down around verse 6, it talks about our relationship with Christ. And right there in the middle of that thing down there around verse 6, it talks about somebody, uh, the, Lord's, uh, the Lord's hand being around somebody's waist and the, the right hand being around their waist and their left hand being on their head. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of somebody leaning over and listening to the heartbeat of God with his hand on his head and his right hand around his side. That's what it's a picture of. The second picture, his great picture is Paul. Where John heard the heartbeat of God, Paul saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we haven't got there in our study yet, but we will. Paul sees the glory of God. He gets taken, transported up to heaven, and when he gets to heaven, he doesn't stay there. Only man in the Bible that goes up and gets kicked out. <laughs> but when he got kicked out, it's the reason why he lived his life the way he did. He saw the power of God. And those two men of the New Testament are probably the two greatest examples to study. John was so moved by the heartbeat of God that God used him to write the greatest book in the Bible that deals with the deity of Christ, the Gospel of John. God used him to write the last book in the Bible, which overcaps the whole Bible and shows you everything about Christ's coming. And when I, when I uh, study John, I study what my own life should be, be able to have a relationship with God above the rest, and God to show uh, you things that he just doesn't show everybody because of the relationship that you have. And Paul, Paul saw it. He was taken up. He saw the glory of God, and it overwhelmed him. And I said, his life was never the same again. And, and that's why, as I said, chapter 8 and 9 go directly together. And they deal with the aspect of uh, the minister's heart. 
uh, and two great chapters in the Bible on giving uh, and, 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 and your heart are directly uh, really has nothing to do with money at all. I want to read for you chapter 8, verses 1 through 5 here as we start this out, and then we're going to make some comments about some things that I think that'll really kind of help you put it all together. Now, here's what he says. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we should receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the, by the will of God. Now, Father, help us today to come to your word and to learn and glean from it. We love you. We thank you for the people. We thank you for the good year you've given us in, in 2012. And, Lord, we look at the uh, thank you for the way we ended it. And so many of these people now, Lord, have, the, have everything at their fingertips to be able to get the Bible down and to grasp it and to get a hold of it. We pray now as we move on into this year and we take these 40 or 50, 60 people who want to be part of, of learning the ins and outs of dealing with people and all the circumstances, we pray, Father, that they would, uh, Lord, that they would, uh, uh, that you just bless us in all that we do. Help us today. Help us to put it all together. Help us as we go out to restart and, and accomplish what you have us to do there. We'll be careful to give you all the honor and the praise. In Jesus' name, for our sake we ask it. Amen. Now, this is, a, for me, anyhow, this is a great chapter in a lot of ways. Uh, look at verse 1, and I want to I show you how this whole thing is built around basically one word. Verse 1 says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia. The grace of God. You know, grace is the key element in everything in our life when it comes to our attitude of heart. Grace is the fundamental precept by which everything revolves around. And uh, a study of the word grace will be a tremendous study for, for anybody that wants to take it. When you study grace, you're going to find that there's many different aspects of it applied to us. And it really forms the balance in our life. Uh, you know, uh, the balance for the Christian uh, life is found in John chapter 1, verse 17. I don't know if you know that. And it simply says this, For law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The two great balances in your life and my life that forms the basis for an attitude of heart and wherever we go with God are those two words right there, grace and truth. And grace and truth are the key. You got to have grace to do what God wants you to do, but you better have truth to make sure grace stays in line and vice versa. Those two things are vital. And those are two things that when you get saved, you grow in. Those are two things that you, when you get saved, you never quit growing in. The older you get, the more you ought to have grown in those two concepts. And when you do, then you really, I guarantee you, you'll fulfill everything that God had for you to fulfill. Now, yet, I, I want to explain this so you're not confused. You heard me New Year's Eve talk about the uh, church age as the age of grace in the Old Testament of being under the law. And uh, that, that, it, that's true. And that's really what John chapter 1 verse 17 is saying. He's saying that the law came by Moses, but when Jesus Christ showed up, he brought grace and truth. And it's an absolute statement to say 
that, that we live in an age of grace. The church age is, is the age of grace. The Old Testament is the, under the law. And that would be absolutely correct. But remember what I said a few moments ago. There's many different aspects of grace. And this is what I want you to understand. Many different aspects of the grace of God and how it works. And uh, uh, from a Bible standpoint, grace is in operation all the way through the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's just not applied the same way. That's the key. Uh, You find grace in the Old Testament. You find grace in the New Testament. Somebody says, well, that's confusing because the Old Testament is under the law and the New Testament is under grace. How can there be grace in the Old Testament and the New Testament when it's under the law? Because it's not just talking about the element of grace as far as salvation is concerned. Now, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament Jew had to keep the law, and that's how he got, he got righteousness with God. In the New Testament, there is no law. We get it by grace as God gave us. But the truth, when you look at the word grace and you look at all the different aspects of it, nobody, Old Testament, before the law, during the law, or after the law, nobody could be saved at all under any circumstances if God didn't first give the grace to be saved, no matter how it is. So it's not in the term just of grace, but it's how it's applied. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, we saw it the other night, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, did Noah get saved by falling down and trusting Jesus Christ as his own personal Savior? Absolutely not. Did Noah get saved by grace like you and I got saved? Certainly he did not. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Yeah, Noah got saved? He got saved by building a boat. And he could have believed God all if he wanted. If he wouldn't have built the boat that God told him to do, he'd have drowned it like everybody else. So grace, when you take that word, and this is so vital that you understand this, grace is a word that has many dimensions to it. And because you hear it all the time for the church age, and we're saved by grace, and yes, we are, and the church age is under grace, no question about it. Grace has many different flavors as you lay it out through the Word of God. As I said, Noah found grace way before the law. And in that same chapter, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, after he was told to build the ark, God waited 120 years before he killed anybody. You know what that is? That's grace. Anything God gives you in a period of time instead of dealing with it the way he should is another form of grace. Grace, as you find it, isn't always just talking about salvation. You're going to see that as you grow. God gave Israel grace uh, way before the church started. You know how he gave them grace? They were so destitute and so messed up and so screwed up, he should have got down and set them into captivity. But four or five hundred years before Nebuchadnezzar or Sennacherib ever came down, you know what God did? God sent them Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. He sent them prophets to try to get them straightened out before he whacked them. You know what that is? That's grace. That's God coming down, should have come down and killed them all on the spot, but he didn't. He sent somebody else to get them back to where they needed to be. That's grace. In other words, grace is when God gives you something that you don't deserve and not only just always in salvation. I mean, uh, it, it, God gave grace to David. David, when he did Uriah and, 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 and Bathsheba and, and, and that great tragedy, there was nothing in the law that he could do. He couldn't bring any sacrifice whatsoever. But you know what did? What God did? God, who should have killed him, God should have demanded his death, didn't. You know what that is? That's grace. 
Somebody says, well, grace is salvation. Well, grace is more than that. Grace is whether you're saved or not this morning. If God did what we're supposed to do, he'd come down and kill every one of us. But he doesn't. You know what that's called? Guess. Grace. It's grace. So when we talk about our salvation and being saved by grace, yeah, we are. And we use grace to define it, uh, you know, as unmerited favor with God. I didn't, I didn't deserve to be saved. God came down and by his grace, he saved me. That's true. But you find grace takes many forms. There's many forms of God's grace. And grace is an operation all through the Bible, not just in the New Testament, but through the Old Testament. Nobody can be saved, Old Testament and New Testament, without God's grace. That's just the way it works. But so you got to look and see how the word is used, and it's used differently. And it's important to understand that. It's not always applied uh, to salvation. Uh, it, 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 grace it just doesn't always get applied to being saved. It's applied different ways. Now, let me show you the process here, and I think this will help you, help you figure it out. Now, there's, as we've talked about, there's a grace for our salvation. We live in a church age, we're under grace. That's great. That's true. You and I got saved, we got saved by grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound to save the rest like me. That's how it works. But you realize that sometimes uh, another aspect of grace is that grace is a period of time. We saw that in Genesis chapter 6. We saw that with the prophets coming to Israel. Grace is the period of time. He gave them a period of time to repent before God come down and killed them. You see the same thing with Jonah and Nineveh. God gave them grace. Sometimes grace is an ability that God gives you when you're dealing with somebody uh, that uh, is trying to do right. And God gives you the grace to be able to work through a situation. Sometimes grace is a particular kind of grace in a, in a, in a circumstances uh, that, uh, uh, that you want to you help somebody get through. Maybe a sickness or maybe a death. In some cases like that, grace is a temporary thing. Somebody dies and somebody needs the grace that they have or needs what you have to be part of that and you have to help them, uh, that takes grace. She, the empathy that you have for them. And it's a temporary thing in that state. Something, sometimes grace is something God gives us to build something for him, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, where he's talking about the judgment seat of Christ, and he says God gives us the grace to be a wise master builder. Grace is the ability that God gives you and I that we don't really deserve and don't have, but it's in many, many things. You have to have grace to be able to teach the Bible. You have to have grace to be able to pastor a church. You have to have grace to be able to disciple somebody. Work with somebody. And certainly grace is something you need if you're going to work with people. I mean, you're going to get into working with people and getting through their problems. You know, people are never going to be the way you want them to be in very few cases. You're going to have your expectations the way things ought to go. And the moment you start, you're going to find it's not going to go that way. Now, you've got two choices. You can just throw your hands up and be frustrated with it, or you can exercise grace and realize in life most things don't go the way we want them to go. But it takes grace. It takes grace in raising a family. Man, you've got to put up with things raising a family. It takes grace when you get married. You can't have everything you want your way all the while you want it. It takes grace when your marriage doesn't work and you get a divorce. Grace you find is in everything we deal with in the world, we have to have grace to deal with it, and it's not just for salvation. 
many Christians have a hard time forgiving other people. I find out all the time where a Christian who they took God's forgiveness, but they can't forgive somebody else. See it all the time. Why is that? Well, it's because you took God's grace to forgive you, but you won't exercise that same grace and give it to somebody else. That's how it works. So the word grace is not just about salvation. In fact, if you look at our text here in, in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, these people are already saved. They're already saved. The grace here he's talking about is their grace in giving, chapter 8 and 9. Their grace in giving. In other words, grace is the key element of our salvation for sure, but grace by grace are you saved through faith. I understand that. But also the key element in our life after we get saved. You see, you're saved by grace, okay? We got that. You're saved by grace, but then you grow by grace as God gives us the grace. That's how it works. And these two chapters deal with the grace of giving in ministry by our attitude of heart. But, you know, before we look at all of that, I, 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 uh, I, I want to lay a little foundation here for you. Now, verses 1 through and 3 here, just so you get a context, he's talking about a, a physical mind, uh, money offering uh, or goods that they raised for the church at Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem was going through some great, great uh, problems uh, financially, very poor and they, 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 they helped send a relief down there by taking up an offering for them. Uh, but the key to all of it is not the giving of money uh, or, the, uh, or the offering uh, to the saints at Jerusalem. That's just the storyline here. You've got to get underneath that. You know, people always get it backward. People get so anal about the aspect of giving, you know, and money. Uh, they think that God wants their money. Uh, you know, not, God doesn't want your money. Preachers want your money. The key to biblical giving is found in the church, uh, in this church, in, in verse 5, and it's, it has nothing to do with money. He says in verse 5 there, and this they did, not as we had hoped, or we hoped, but first gave of their own selves to the Lord and under the will of God. You see, God doesn't, God doesn't need or want your money. God wants you. That's what he wants. He cares nothing about your finances, nothing about your house, nothing about your car, nothing about all the things that you have that you spend so much time worrying about. What he wants is you. Because it's real simple. When he gets you and really gets you and gets your heart and you get a changed heart, he gets everything you got. That's how it works. Not hard. When God has you and me first, he'll get everything you are and everything you got. It's just real simple. This is why, you know, you, know, you, find, uh, you find legalism uh, versus the Bible. I call it the John Lott syndrome. Just like making good laws won't make good government, making Christian rules won't make good Christians. And that's what legalism does. Legalism tells you how to wear your clothes, how to wear your hair, where you can go, where you can't go, and pretty much takes everything out of your life. You just get the sheet of rules, you're good to go. But just like creating good laws don't make a good government, creating Christian rules don't make good Christians. In both cases, it goes back to our attitude of heart. When I preach, you, I'm, not, I'm not big on a lot of rules. I mean, I think the Bible is very clear on the ones that are, are, are the main ones you've got to follow, and we don't even have to talk about it. We know those things. But I'm not big on a bunch of Christian rules. When I preach, I don't lay out a system of rules. When I preach, I go after one thing when I preach. It's your heart. That's what I go after. 
I preach not to your body, not to your face. I preach to your heart because I understand that if, if God gets your heart, he'll get you. David, when he went through his great sacrifice and his great struggle in Psalm 51, 7, he said, God told him down through there, I'm not interested in your sacrifices. I'm not interested in what you do. If you really want to get some kind of get place with me, then the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh, God, that will not despise. God wants your heart. So when I preach, I don't, I don't, I don't go after the things you do. I, I may talk about things that are sin, but I, I, I don't go after anybody's particular deal. I just preach at somebody's heart. Because if that doesn't get you, you're ungettable. And like I said, I could, I could create the greatest spiritual environment that we could have, which I have. I could create, I could, have a, I could put 50 people around you that love God when you don't love God. But it won't do any good if your heart isn't where God wants it to be. You know, in the Bible, and we learn this now again from our, our New Year's Eve. In the Bible, free will is a great study. And we know that free will is the whole plan of God from Genesis to Revelation. God gives everything that he created a choice. We know that now. When God created man, he gave us, made us free moral agents. We get to decide. And if you're sitting here this morning, you get to decide whether you're going to go to heaven or hell. People came in Thursday night, and the people that were there were lost. Some were saved, and at the end, we gave an invitation, and some people who were lost decided, hey, I want to get saved. And they changed from darkness to light. They got saved. They made the choice. After you get saved, you have another choice. That choice is, are you going to grow or are you not? That choice is, are you going to do what God saved you for, or are you going to keep your whole life for yourself? Boy, it's an understatement to say it, and I know I say it a lot, but it's an understatement. Life is choices. And as the child of God, you think your choices are over the day you got saved. No, you're wrong. Your choices are just beginning. But now you have the wherewithal to make the right choices where before you couldn't make any right choices. But it's free will. Now, I know that Calvinism and Calvinists try to take that away. I have a number of friends who are Calvinists. And I've known a number of people who are Calvinists. And for those of you that don't know what a Calvinist is, John Calvin was a reformer uh, along the time of Martin Luther. And John Calvin uh, basically started the Presbyterian Church with, when, John, when Martin Luther was doing the German Reformation. John Calvin was doing his own Reformation in, in Switzerland and Scotland and places like that. And John Calvin uh, was, a, uh, was a man who, who wanted to, uh, you know, start his own church set up. And so he founded the Presbyterian Church. The difference between John Calvin and, and Martin Luther, in my own mind, from my own study, is one was saved and one was lost. I don't believe John Calvin was saved for five seconds. If you believe what he wrote in his articles of faith and you believe what he wrote down through history about salvation, he believed you'd be baptized to go to heaven. I, if you can get to heaven that way, then more power to you. But when Martin Luther turned the world around for God, uh, Calvin turned around for himself. And when Calvin, uh, he came up with the idea that... Uh, that uh, you know, that way, way, way back before Genesis chapter 1, way back before we started the other night, God looked down through heaven and saw everybody sitting here. In, in essence, everybody in the world that was ever born. And God decided that well, you're going to heaven and you're not, and you're going to heaven and you're not, and you're going to heaven and you're not. He chose who was going to go. 
And John Calvin taught that, uh, you know, that uh, God chose everybody. Uh, they call it predestinated. And so God either predestinated you to go to heaven or God predestinated you to go to hell. And there's nothing you can do about it. You know, I mean, uh, Jesus loves me. Sorry about you. You're not one of the chosen few. I mean, if, you, if, you, if he didn't choose you, there's nothing you can do to get to heaven. And if he didn't, if he choose you to go to heaven, there's nothing you can do not to go to heaven. So they don't put a lot of emphasis on winning people to Christ because they, they shall be, shall be. They're going to, they just believe that if you're saved, you're going to get there. I always think you can pin a Calvinist down in his heresy uh, when it comes to little babies dying. You know what Calvin, Calvinists teach when a baby dies? Calvinists teach, has to look in that parent's face and says, well, there's a chance your little baby went to hell because the age of accountability doesn't apply. You see, it isn't like, well, when you were a baby, you were under the age of accountability, and then after you hit the age of accountability, God chose you or didn't chose you. No, he chose you way back when. So a Calvinist has to look in that parent's face who are putting that little white casket down on the ground and say, your child, your baby only had a 50-50 chance of making it to heaven because if he wasn't chosen, he's going to hell. Now, how would you like to face two parents and tell them that? You know why they, they, why I know Calvinists are so crooked? They'll never address that issue. Never address that issue. Well, if I believed it was true, I'd be telling you right on the spot. But I'm telling you right on the spot it isn't true. I've never, and I, I got friends that are Calvinists, I do. And I, I, I've looked at them over the years, and I can tell you one thing about every guy that I know that's a Calvinist, and that is simply this. You couldn't put what he knows about the Bible in the left eye of a blind gnat. He doesn't get, know anything about the Word of God. He didn't know anything about the Bible. If he knew the Bible, he wouldn't believe the foolish things that he believed. But that's what Calvinism is, see? Calvinism, that God picked some of you, the rest of you he didn't pick. And you can't do anything about it. In other words, Calvinism takes away your free will. And God chose. We know the other night that's not true. Why, God give everybody a choice. You know why? Because free will is the name of the game. Everything you do, and I do, and everything you do for God and I do for God is based on a free will. By your free will, you sat and heard me preach or sometime or somebody preach, and you decided to be saved or not to be saved. After you're saved, you come on a church, you go to church, and every Sunday you make a conscious free will choice. I'm going to do what God says or I'm going to do what I want to do. That's the way it works. Seventeen times you find in the Bible, it talks about free will. And every time you find it, it's dealing with something somebody's given to God. It's a, it's a choice. It's a choice we make in life. Every choice we make, I don't care what it is, is based on free will. We talk about building the character qualities of Christ in our lives and being Christ-like. Well, without a doubt, the greatest single number one character quality of Christ was the fact that he gave. For God so loved the world that he gave. And I'm not talking about money in any way, shape, or form. This church here, even though they got an offering in the center of down Jerusalem, Paul said, forget the money. They gave of them own selves first because they were growing in grace. And if you're not willing to give your own self first, you can forget the rest of it. it ain't going anywhere. I mean, it's so simple. When we have the character qualities of Christ, it's simple. We give. We give of ourselves. We give to others. And we give our lives to God. When we don't, we keep it all for ourselves. Uh, you know, it's giving of your own self first. You come through a very simple, basic process 
when God changes your heart, and I've seen so many of you come through this process. I mean, I could just list your names off of how I've watched you from the time you got saved grow through a process. And many of you now, you're, you're head and shoulders above others that have been saved all of their lives. Why? Why is that? Why can somebody get saved and be saved for four or five years and be where this person has uh, been saved for 10, 15 years and they're nowhere near where the person only saved five years was? Why is that? Anybody have an explanation? It's real simple. You're choosing your free will choice. And you can actually see the process in people's lives. I mean, to me, it's one of the most exciting things I ever see. First, God gives us the grace to be saved. We know that. By grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, least any man should boast. God gives you grace to be saved. And then that grace God gave you for salvation, yes, we understand. It's unmerited favor with God. I don't deserve it. I don't, I don't, I don't, I couldn't do anything to get it. It's God gave me his grace to save me. But he gave me his grace what, do I just put it in my back pocket like I do my wallet? Do I just fold it up and put it on a shelf like some book I never read? He gave you the grace not only to save you, but he gave you that grace that you could grow in it because he's got something he wants you to do. Now, once you're truly saved by that grace, God again now will take that grace and grow you through that grace to have you do what he wants you to do. And he adds to that grace. You know what he adds to it? He adds truth, because grace by itself is not enough. You take grace by itself and just be somebody that, that, and you see it all the time. You see churches that have a lot of grace, but they have no truth. Then you find churches that have truth, but they have no grace. And you find Christians the same way. You have Christians who know the Bible, know the Bible, know the Bible, but they're so intolerant with other people, they have no grace for anybody else. When it doesn't go their way in about 15 minutes, they're ready to bail out. You know why? Because you got the book, but you got no grace. Then you got other people who got grace, and they'll just put up with crap on and on and on and on and on, and they'll never drop the hammer. They'll never deal with it. You know why? Because they got grace, but they got no truth. They're out of balance. The balance for you and me, as we grow in grace, is as you grow in grace, you have to grow in truth because Jesus Christ brought us grace and truth, and yet one, one keeps the other in balance. And all through this now, you, you have a changed heart toward the things of God. As the Bible says, and we teach you, you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away, all things become new. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, this is now called the singleness of heart. God changed your heart, gave you his chart. You got God's grace. Now you do something with that grace. You grow in that grace. And there lies the character qualities of Christ. I mean, it's so basic and so simple. It's unbelievable. As you grow, and you grow in truth, you grow in grace, then God gives you the different aspects of his grace. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 talks about stewardship. Anytime a preacher starts to talk about stewardship the congregation immediately starts thinking about, here we go again, money. But you know what? It has, when, when he talks about that stewardship in, in the book of 1 Peter, it has nothing to do with money, and it has to do with the fundamental thing that we're talking about. Because he says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, as every man hath received the gift, that'll be the grace of God, even so minister the same one as good stewards 
of the manifold, manifold, more, one, more than one dimension, manifold grace of God. A manifold on your car sits on top of the engine block, and it's got all the different ports that goes down inside the engine, more than one. Manifold, that's why they call it a manifold. It's got more than one access into the engine. And the grace of God that God gives you, you need to be a steward over the manifold, all of them, all of the different aspects of God's grace. You don't just take God's grace and get saved, and that's all you do with it. You need to become a steward. And you want a great study on that? The great study on that is, uh, is uh, Abraham and Eleazar back in the Old Testament. Abraham had a steward. His name was Eleazar. And the Bible tells you that he was over everything that was in Abraham's house. All right. Abraham's a type of God the Father. Eleazar a type of you and me. Look at all that Eleazar had, what he entrusted to him, what he did. That's your job with God. It's just simple. It's simple. The manifold grace of God, all the different aspects. I'm not just to have them. I'm to be a steward of them. I'm to look at them as something that belongs to God, that God gives to me, that he put me in charge of, that I got to give an account of, of the grace that God gave me. Boy, don't you know, don't you know when we get to the judgment seat of Christ, when you start to nitpick all these things through, you know the judgment seat of Christ is going to be a lot more about just what you did and what you didn't do. It's going to be what you were stewards over that God gave you. Can you imagine standing at judgment seat of Christ when you realize all the grace that God has given you and now why he gave it to you and he made you steward over it and you by your own choosing chose to do nothing with it except take it for salvation? Oh, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Manifold grace of God, the many aspects to it that we have to have to be a steward uh, a good steward in the ministry that God has saved us for. You know, in doing the ministry, it takes grace on your part to do it right. That's why when you get saved, uh, you know, you don't go right into ministry. You start to do basic things. You help out here. You begin to grow, and then you get discipled, and you go through a process of learning to grow and uh, in, in That's why it's so vital that when you get discipled, the person to disciple you knows what they're doing that the person that disciples you has a good life that you can look back and say, man, if I want my life to be just like that. And doing the ministry, it takes grace on your part to do what's right. And when you get saved, you begin to grow and you begin to do the little things. And as the Bible says, you, you be faithful in the little things, God will make you rule over many things. And you grow. And as you grow in grace, you also grow in truth. I think one of the greatest, for me, I can't speak for you. I'm not getting these out of a book someplace. This was through my own life experience. I think the greatest definition of, of grace, and I know it's unmerited favor with God. I, I know that. You can find that anywhere you want to go, and every preacher tells you that. But I think grace personally, I think grace is my ability to recognize what God has given me and what God is doing in any particular situation. I think that's grace. I think grace is our ability to recognize something. I think grace is the ability that God gives uh, that we give God to do some things in his own time. That we look at a situation we recognize. Yeah, I'd like this to happen a lot quicker. Yeah, I'd really like this to happen, bing, boom, boom. But grace is the ability that you realize that it's not. And your ability to see whatever circumstances you're in, 
Whatever you're doing for God, you may have your own plans, but God has his plans. And sometimes, most of the time, just about all of the time, they don't really line up. You have to be ability, you have to be, you have to have the ability to adjust. You can't look at a situation when it doesn't go the way you want it. You just throw it out. Grace is the ability to recognize that you have to give some things some time for God to do something. Grace is giving people time to work through some things. It's easy to look at somebody we don't like and hack them off with their ankles because we don't like them. But, and I look at that, and I see that and fear that all the time with people. And I, when I start to feel that way, I just look at my own ankles, and I think, boy, I'm sure glad God didn't whack me off there. That's grace. Being able to give somebody else extended time in something based on just keeping a record of your extended time that God's given us. But you see, you've got to grow through that. Grace is putting up with things. Because you've got to deal with larger issues first. And you're going to find this when you work with people. There'll be a lot of little irritating things that people do. But you realize to put those over here right now because we've got larger fish to, fish to fry over here. And that's grace. That's grace in working with people. You can't fix it all at one time. I, I'd love to. You won't find anybody on the planet would like to get a quicker fix than me. But it doesn't work that way. And the reason why people don't make good ministers, don't make good pastors, don't make good people that work with people is because they don't have the grace to give people the time that they need or be able to recognize circumstances when God is doing something in His timing, not ours. Or the fact that uh, um, it, it's a thing where it just, uh, you know, you got to work on this first to get to this. And, and these are all things that Somebody say, wow, what book did you get that out of? I didn't get those out of a book. I got those out of my own life because those are the things that God did with me. And if you're honest this morning, those are the things he did with you. The difference between me and you, I learned them and you didn't. I don't know why, but I know this, it's choice. But I know this, it's grace. Grace is giving people time to develop themselves even though you think they should be moving faster. I'll tell you something else. Grace is the ability to let people fail. Because sometimes failure is the only way that people learn. I think that's one of the main problems that, that parents make. I think parents make the basic fundamental problem. They're not willing to let their kid fail. And I think in many cases, it's because the parents personally don't want to look bad. They think they got some kind of religious social status they got to hold up to. And so, they, 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 oh, if my kid really failed, well, what am I going to say at the garden club? Or what am I going to say at church when everybody talks about it? What am I going to do? You see, that's putting your own self over what is best for your child. Some people need to fail. It's the only way they're ever going to learn anything. And, 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 and many parents, they, they won't allow that to happen. They think, well, I can't, you know, I just can't let my child go through that. I've known parents that would never, uh, that their, their child got to the place where they were alcoholics and they got four or five DWIs and they kept getting traffic tickets. And you know what the parents did? Instead of letting that kid go to jail and spend about a six months or eight months making big rocks into little ones, they just keep shelling out the money for a slick lawyer. And the kid never learns the lessons because mommy and daddy just can't hardly think of the fact of him going to jail. Well, that would be the only thing that maybe get him out of it. 
And then down the line, when he gets drunk and you keep getting him and he kills somebody head on some night, then you're going to, you know what? Then you have to deal with that. Hard decisions are hard decisions. It's grace to be able to let people fail. You don't let them fail in this fall. You let them fail to pick them back up. But sometimes you got to fail. Sometimes they got to make a mess out of it. Sometimes they got to go bankrupt. Sometimes they got to lose their house. Sometimes they got to lose this. I have parents all the time say, well, I just can't. I just can't do that because I'm afraid that if I put him out of the house, you know, he'll have nowhere to go. That's a bad thing. I would think, based on a prodigal son syndrome, that living under I-435 in a cardboard box for two or three days might be a good experience. But it takes grace. It takes grace to let people fail. We always are trying to, always try to fix the problem for somebody. And people, when you continue to fix problems for somebody or continue to make excuses for somebody or continue to orchestrate the circumstances for somebody, you're not doing them any favor. You're not doing them any favor. Well, I'll tell you what, many times in my life, God let me hit the wall. Say, what do you think about that? I think it was the best times of my life. But I think about it. Hitting the wall is never fun. But sometimes it's what we need, and so it takes grace. Grace is giving people time to develop themselves, even though you think they, like I said, should move on faster. Grace is seeing the situation as it really is. God working behind the scenes, even though it's not real obvious. Somebody says, well, wow, Bob, you're really setting yourself up, man. People will just pull the wool over your eyes all the time. People will just tell you what you want to hear. Why, with what that, laying that thing out, I mean, uh, somebody could just play the game, go pick up their fiddle and just be fiddling around and playing that thing and playing you a sweet song and doing whatever they want to do. You see, that's where you're wrong. That's grace. But the thing that always balances that grace out is the truth. I look at grace as the road of life. And if you drive home today and you're on a big highway, you got lots of room there to drive. But you know what? You got a center line and you got a white line over here that tells you what you got to stay be in. And you get outside of that, you're going to wind up in a ditch. You get on this side, you're going to wind up dead probably, maybe dead in both cases. But the bottom line is that's the truth. The road is the grace, but the white lines are the truth that holds you on the road. That's how I look at it. When grace is giving people... <clears throat> When grace is giving people the time they need to work through some things, as I said, truth will always show you when they're wasting your time. Oh, yeah. It isn't grace, 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 do whatever you want to do. No, you give people grace, but you got to hold them accountable to truth. And when you give them grace and they abuse that grace, it's the Word of God that shows you when they are wasting your time. I've had people that I've tried to help over the years, people I've tried to get involved with. I saw their potential, as I've said many, many times. I I tried to get involved in their life, tried to do this, tried to do that. I got absolutely nothing back. After a period of time, I move on. It's now a waste of my time, not because I'm a bad guy, not because I don't have grace. It's because you didn't change your heart and you want to stay where you're at. You can stay there. I'll come down and sit with you for a while, but I am then moving on with or without you. I'll find somebody else to work with. It's the way it works. 
Yeah, sure, grace is giving people time they need to work through some things. You bet it is, but truth will always show you when you're wasting your time. I, I told you a couple of weeks ago, you can't read people's hearts, and I never claim to. I don't have to. You can't read people's hearts, but truth will always reveal to you their character and their attitude of heart. 1 Corinthians 8, 3, if any man love God, the same is known of him. Where grace is giving people time to develop themselves, truth will show you when it becomes a game. And they're playing a little game with you. They're telling you one thing and doing something else. You see, grace and truth. And I won't be, I hate to reveal all my secrets. <clears throat> I am the greatest game player you ever met in your life. There isn't a game that you try to play against me. But I don't see it before you ever get the game, all the cards out of the box. I worked with Truman Dollar for a number of years. And Truman Dollar, <clears throat> I, I learned so much about the ministry from him, and I will be in internal debt for him giving me a chance to be in the ministry. And he may not have wound up very good, but uh, I publicly never say anything bad against Truman Dollar. Uh, I, I appreciate everything I learned. Truman's style of ministry, and we had like 18 staff pastors on the staff at the same time, a mega church. And uh, Truman's style of leadership was pitting one against the other. And he, I think he liked it as the challenge of it. And I never was part of that, and I was smart enough to see that. And all the rest of them, uh, and I don't mean this in an arrogant way, but I always looked at them as dumber than a stump and me smarter than the stump. And I always saw the games, and I never got involved in it. He would tell somebody to watch somebody else. And he'd tell that same person to watch this person. Pastors. And he created this aura, and that's how he, that's how he ran things. He, he ran by control, and he controlled people by telling them certain things and that. We had one guy on the staff, and his name was, was Herb Hubbard. Some of you know Herb Hubbard. <clears throat> I got to say it to Herb's whatever. He's now one of the biggest pastors down south in Atlanta, got a mega church down there, so, uh, which means nothing. <laughs> But Herbert, Herb, Herb was a butt kisser. If we want to edit that off the tape, that's fine. He was a, he was a, he was a behind kisser. He was the biggest behind kisser you ever met in your life. He knew nothing about the Bible. He knew nothing about ministry. He knew nothing about anything. His whole world was politics. That's how he got the big church down there. It was belonged to somebody that he knew to get down the step. It was a stepping ladder that goes down the line. And Herb Hubbard was always the, he was the ear. And whatever Herb went, heard, he went back and told him. And that's how he controlled it, see? He'd get his little guys out there telling him what to hear, and he's got all kinds of good information. Not a bad plan if that's how you want to do it. Well, <clears throat> Herb was always pumping me for information. And I, and I got fed up with it. And so one day I, I, I told Herb, I said, well, I said, I'll tell you, Herb, I said, I, want, I need you to pray for me for something. And he said, oh, yeah, what? <clears throat> and I said, well, I said, I'm really struggling. Because at that particular point, I, 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 my, my Sunday school class was, was off the chart. I mean, uh, my Sunday school class gave more to missions in one year than the whole church gave. I mean, it was going to town. And Truman didn't want to lose that. He was smart, and he knew how to play it. <clears throat> and so I told, I, and, and, and he was always worried that Mel Sabaka, who was now in New York, was going to pull me out and take me to New York with him. See? And I knew that. Hey, you want to play the game with me? I'll play the game with you. 
And so that day, you know, I, was, I had it with her because he was just a, yeah, he was. And so I told him, I said, I said, yeah, I said, I'm really struggling with the decision. I said, Mel's really made me an offer to go to New York with him. He says, and I just can't pass it out. And, or immediately. I mean, I could see the doo-doo-doo-doo-doo. You know, he said, well, I'll be praying for your brother. And I just kind of walked out to that. Immediately. He walked out like he was going to his office, walked around this thing. And I was watching him. He walked down there, and boy, he went right to the preacher's <laughs> office. <clears throat> he told Truman. A week later, Truman called me in the office about something else. Before he called me, Mel called me. Mel says, what is going on down here in this place? Have you guys lost your minds? And I said, well, we, we probably have all lost our mind, but what's the deal? He says, I just got the most scathing letter from Truman Dollar. <clears throat> How he absolutely detests the fact that I would try to take you out of that church and bring you up with me. He says, I, I, he says, he says this, and I'm going to quote Mel. Can I quote Mel? Can I quote him? He said, what in the hell is he talking about? <laughs> and, I, and I said, just hang on. I said, I got to go in and see him. So I go in. We're talking about some other things, and it, he, Truman kind of pulls back in his chair, you know. He, and he says, well, he said, I want to tell you something, buddy. <clears throat> he says, I just fired off a letter to Mel Sabaka last week. And he says, I'm as mad as, his favorite saying was, I'm as mad as a striped snake. And he says, I, t- I found out about him wanting to hire you up there and bring you up there, and I just, I, just, I just called him everything in the book, and I just let him have it. And I just sat there. He says, I thought you ought to know that. And I said, well, I think you ought to know that, that none of that was true, and I just made that up and told her that. <laughs> That's exactly what he did. <laughs> he said, what? I said, none of it was true. Mel never tried to hire me. I said, I'm sick and tired of that little errand boy running around and telling you something. He's pumping me all the time for information, so I gave him something juicy. <laughs> and I love you, and you can fire me anytime you want, but if you're going to try to play that game with me, get somebody better than him. <laughs> because I know how to play the game as good as you do or anybody else out there, and if you're going to play the game with me, Truman, I'd call him, we'll call him preacher. If you're going to play the game with me, preacher, get me somebody worthy of the game. Herb was so mad at me. <laughs> he, he hated my guts to this day, probably. <clears throat> and I loved it. Hey, don't tell me about playing the game, man. I know it. I know it. I know it. I've told you many, many times. We had the greatest night, New Year's Eve, you could ever want. 250-plus people on fire for God went out of here. Hallelujah, and I got the Bible. And I'm not so stupid to know that 20 minutes after you were out of here, the old devil started to undo what God did that night. I watched some of you take the position of being a deacon or do this and do that, and you want to pretend to me that you're doing all you're supposed to do, and you know as well as I do, and you know as well as I do, it's a game now. It's a game now. It's become a game now. I know how the game plays. You kidding me? You think I'm some bozo off the turnip truck up here? I just pretend to be stupid. For me, it's easy. <laughs> I've seen those situations all my life. I know that fake plastic smile. I know that little nice little voice. I know the, I know the okay, brother. I know how it all goes. Where grace is giving people the time they need to work through some things, truth will tell you when it's now over and it's now entered into the games. 
And all this is the basis for the great principles I keep putting before you. That's the ultimate game plan for me. Never want anybody to do right and never want anybody to come to church more than they want to. Meet them on their own turf. Always wanting to do what's right. Always to be there if they ever decide. But realize that grace is the ability to say, I'm here for you. But truth is the ability to say, but you're not ready for it. And you ain't playing me. I may look like a fiddle, but my strings are broke. (laughs) When you do that, you'll get taken advantage of. Because your grace was not balanced with your truth. You're outside those white lines and you're going to get killed. I, I never chase people who don't want to get caught anymore. I did for many years. But I don't chase people who don't want to get caught. I don't try to help people who won't help themselves. And I don't get the idea that you put bad people with good people just so it'll help the bad people. If that heart doesn't change, nothing's going to change. Better get it. In taking and doing the ministry, it takes grace to do it. I think the book of Philippians is a great book, and it, it has so many. Uh, uh, to me, the book of Philippians is the Christian book on balance. There's 10 verses in there. I've given them to you before. There's 10 verses in there coming through that book that if you get those 10 verses in your life, you can't miss it. You, if It's all you had to live your life for God was the book of Philippians and you couldn't get the rest of the Bible. Those 10 things would get you through. But I find reading through that book, when you get that book down and you understand the balance between grace and truth, that there's... Ten real areas of a balance I know I need in my life and they probably need for you. You see, a Christian who's balanced, grace and truth. A Christian will always be self-reliant. He won't have to depend on a lot of people because he's a leader. But he'll never get to the place where he becomes self-sufficient. See, that's out of balance. You can be self-reliant because you have the Word of God but you become self-sufficient when you don't need God anymore. A a Christian needs to be steadfast. There's some things that a Christian needs to hold a line with. But a Christian never wants to become stubborn because he has to look at things change sometimes. A Christian always wants to be tactful in what he does, but a Christian never wants to be timid in what he does. A Christian wants to be serious about the things that he does, but he never wants to become pious or self-righteous in what he does. A Christian should be unmovable in some things. There's some things that I'm unmovable on, but a Christian should never become stationary because we always have to keep moving forward. A Christian should be generous. A Christian should try to help people. A Christian should be generous, but a Christian... That's grace, but a Christian has to use truth that he doesn't become gullible. Has to be a balance. Has to be a balance. A Christian should be meek, but he should never be weak. Meekness is God's power under control. A Christian should be gentle, but a Christian should never be wishy-washy. Some of you should be Chinese. Wishy-washy. 
<laughs> Christian needs to be tender, much like myself, but not touchy or thin-skinned or taking everything personal. A Christian always balances truth. He always preaches truth. He always stands for the truth, but he seasons that truth with grace, and he has the ability to do it back and forth. In doing the ministry, it takes grace to do it. It'll take grace for you to deal with people. As you grow in grace, you should grow in truth because that always helps keep the balance. But it all goes back to a man's attitude of heart. Realizing as you build your character qualities of Christ in your life, it will be about uh, the attitude of your heart in giving back to God what God has given to you based on your growth in grace based on the greatest character quality that he ever gave us, his grace. As, as you get more of his heart as you grow, you get more of his grace. As you get more of his heart, as you get more of his grace, and you get more of his truth, then in time you come to a point where you give God everything that he wants of your own self. And you become like the church at Corinth. You gave your own self first. When you don't, and I, I must tell you, there's nothing more obvious uh, we all like to, we all have a blind side in things. Uh, in that verse, 1 Corinthians 8, 3, it works both ways. It says, if any man love God, the same is known to him. But it doesn't say this, but it's a reversal verse. If any man do, doesn't love God, it shows the same way. Nothing more obvious than a child of God who doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. And, and we're all blinded. We all like to blind ourselves to it, you know. It's like, uh, you know, uh, we, we don't want to ever admit that our kids got any problems. I've known parents that their kids got drug problems, drinking problems, all these problems, and the parents just lock it all up. They just keep it all in-house. Nobody ever finds out about it. Their home must be a hell on earth. And when a boy overdoses someday or that, then it'll be somebody else's fault. They just can't. That We always like to have to turn a blind side to things. But there's nothing more obvious than a child of God uh, who, uh, who refuses to give God all that he is. It's like the proverbial elephant in the living room. I mean, you go home tonight and imagine a 1,200-pound elephant or two-ton elephant in your living room. And you can say, there's no elephant here. You can sit there and watch television and look around it and say, there's no elephant here. What elephant? You can deny that there's an elephant in your room right up to the point where he goes over in the corner and makes the most humongous mess you ever saw in your life. <laughs> At that point, you can't ignore it anymore. Now you've got to deal with it. And life's the same way. You can ignore and pretend that you're where you're at when you're not. You can pretend that you love God when you don't. You can pretend all the things that you want right up to the point that your life makes the biggest stinking mess in the corner you ever saw in your life. Then you've got to deal with it. I, I, I would just think it would be better to deal with it now, but that's me. As we go through this great chapter, 8 and 9, you're going to see these things. My goal for you, I did it Thursday night, was to give you the truth, the Word of God. New Year's Eve, excuse me. Was to give you the truth of the Word of God. But truth is not enough. You can have the truth, but you've got to have the grace. You can have the grace, but you've got to have the truth. One of the things that we'll do with our, our people ministry that you, you, will, you will get or you won't make it, you'll learn to grow in grace. You'll learn the different aspects of it. You'll learn the manifold stewardships of that grace. 
You'll be in situations, see situations where I can't explain them like I can in there. I can sit down and say, okay, here's scenario number one. Watch this. Bang, 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 bang. Why did this happen down here? Let me show you why. How could it have been inverted? Here's how it could have been inverted. What does the Bible say about it? Here it is. That's how you learn. Because it's grace and truth. Grace and truth. When God saved you, God saved you by his grace. After you're saved, he wants to take that grace and he wants to develop that grace because the goal that you want to get in your life by your own free will is to get God's heart in everything you do, character qualities of God. The only way you do that is to grow in two areas, grace and truth. And they always have to stay in proportion to the other. Maybe a little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit, but they always balance out because that's what it takes. Grace and truth. Grace, the road of life. Truth is the white lines that keep us or whoever you're working with between them. It makes it real simple, and it makes it real easy. That's why the first thing I wanted to show you in this chapter before we ever got anywhere with it and ever got anywhere was where he says, of the grace of God. Because the grace of God is something that needs to be understood. You need to get out of the mindset that it's just about the day you got saved. You got grace to be saved, but then God gives you grace to do what he wants you to do, and it comes in many forms, many fashions, manifold grace of God. Your job and my job, to be a steward of them. Let's pray.